0: The passage that we'll be looking at today, we're going to continue in the 14th chapter of John, John 14, verses 8 to 14, and you can find that on page 901 of the Blue Pew Bibles, if you've got one of those. So here is the gospel according to John, chapter 14, verses 8 to 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Would you join me in prayer before we turn our attention to this passage? Father in heaven, yet again, uh, as we come before you in prayer, we are reminded uh, of the command, that, that most difficult of commands, uh, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. We are before you as a, a, a people, um, a part of a city, a state, a nation, which in many ways is grieving. Uh, Father, as we uh, lament uh, and bewail eruptions of violence uh, that we have seen, as, as we've seen the sin of white supremacy blow up and take ten lives in Buffalo, and, and as we've seen violence against our brothers and sisters in the Taiwanese community of California and closer to home um, as we lament the loss of life and of livelihood and the anxieties and the, and the, and the struggles that we continue to labor under. Um, and in all of these things, Father, we cry out to you and we say, how long? because that's what Your Word has taught us to do. Uh, You have taught us to cry out to You, to say, the world is not the way it's supposed to be, but there is one who can make it so. There's one who's worthy of hearing our laments. At the same time, we rejoice today. We We have seen the incomparable beauty of this sacrament that You've given us, as You have miraculously joined to Yourself and to Your body Sinners saved by grace and their children. Um, As we've been able to marvel um, in this this sign that reminds us that every single one of us in this room who would claim faith in you at one time was dead, just dead in our trespasses, uh, turned against you, your enemies. And at that moment, at that time, you saved us. And we rejoice. We rejoice in the joy of your salvation. We pray that the joy of your salvation would be restored uh, in any in whom it's grown cold. And we pray, Father, that even here, even even in this room, even uh, today on a hot day, when it is harder than usual uh, to pay attention, your word would be at work because you've made promises about your word. Uh, You've made promises uh, that your spirit works through Your Word to shape us and to mold us, uh, to draw our minds and our affections to Christ and to make us more and more like Him. That is our prayer uh, as, we, as we look at this passage, as we listen to the words of our Savior. Um, I pray, as always, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, I had to laugh uh, at Nathan's comment uh, about Bradley's singing voice um, because I had a similar experience this morning. Um, Bradley and I, this whole month, are helping to cover Brian Loney's sabbatical. He's the pastor at Parkway Presbyterian in Roslindale. So this month, we're over there preaching. So the sermon that Bradley preached here last week, he preached in Roslindale. I preached this sermon there uh, this morning. and. As as here, also there, uh, we start with the pastor prays first, and after I prayed, somebody came up and asked, can I, can I make a little adjustment to your, to your mic there? And, and they had to turn it up. Why? Because it was set to Bradley. And if you, if you haven't noticed, our voices are not quite the same. But it's been a real joy and a pleasure uh, to be in the Gospel of John this spring. We're almost done for now. We're almost done with the part of John that we'll be in. We're going to get through the end of chapter 14 uh, and finish up on June 5th, which is Pentecost Sunday. Um, And then we'll turn our attention to something else and come back to John uh, after Christmas next year. Um, Let me remind you of the context. Uh, Where are we? We're in the upper room. Um, Everything that's been happening, chapter 13 and, and 14, Uh, is taking place in the upper room. Chapters 15 to 17 will continue uh, what's often called the farewell discourse. It's the longest account we have of what Jesus said to His disciples uh, before He was betrayed. Um, But after chapter 14, they leave the room and are are heading out uh, towards the garden. At this point, if you're like me, you're feeling some sympathy for the confusion that the disciples are experiencing. Every week, we're seeing them ask a different question and get an answer that just has to be more and more heightening their confusion. What does Jesus mean? Who is this that's talking to us? Peter wanted to know, why can't we follow where you're going? Last week, Thomas wanted to know, wait, we don't even know where you're going. How can we follow you? And you remember Jesus' answer was, Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. I am the way because I'm the truth and the life as Bradley explained to us last week. This week, Philip responds to that by saying, Lord, show us the Father. If you're the way to the Father, let's get there now. Let's just get to the destination. Show us the Father. What we're going to see as we look at the way that Jesus responds to Philip is really just two things. One is that Philip is asking exactly the right question. Philip is desiring the best thing. Philip is desiring exactly what Jesus desires, that his disciples would see the Father, see the Father's glory, that the Father would be glorified in the Son, the Son and the Father, and that the disciples would be seeking that. It's exactly the right question. But secondly, when we think about the way he answers Philip, and put that together with what he said to Thomas about him being the way, it's going to teach us something about what it means to seek the Father's face, and in particular that seeing the Father in Jesus is not simply a matter of arriving and being in a static resting point. It's about a whole way of life, that in encouraging his disciples, To follow him, the way to the Father, and to seek the Father's face, he's encouraging a whole new way of life. So, first of all, this question that Philip is asking, what he's asking for, it's just its exactly the right thing. Bradley mentioned this last week. We've we've said this pretty frequently um, uh, as we've gone through the Gospel of John. Jesus in chapter 17 is going to lay out the nature of eternal life. The nature of that life that he came to give, a life fit for the ages, a life of abundance. In John 17, 3, he says, this is eternal life. He's praying here, speaking to his father. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is the crux of everything. And we've we've, we've seen evidence of this all the way through the Gospel of John. Think about all these different conversations that Jesus has had with different people. With Nicodemus, with the woman at the well, with uh, the man um, that he healed uh, at the pool of Bethsaida. Um, every place where he's been asked some question, he's constantly turned things back to relationship. Um, in response to Nicodemus's question, it was, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Uh, in response to the woman at the well asking, which mountain do we worship on? Jesus said, that's not... That's not really the point. The point is that the Father is seeking worshipers in spirit and in truth, and He's going to find them. And you're invited to that kind of relationship. Um, Jesus has constantly been calling people to know the Father and to know them through Him. Um, most recently, remember in, in John 13, when Peter protested against Jesus washing his feet, what changed his mind? what got him to say, okay, not my feet, but my head and my hands also, was when Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And Peter knew that he needed Jesus, that he needed that relationship. What we're seeing throughout the Gospel of John is that it is the encounter with Jesus that changes people. So the question for us to be asking ourselves out of that is, Are we encountering Jesus in our lives? When we think about our faith, are we seek to deepening it by drawing near to Him? When we read His words, do we read them as Jesus' words to us and ask, what is it that each passage that we read, when you read the psalm every morning, we're reading the psalms together as a church, when you read those psalms, are you asking yourself, where do I see Jesus? in this psalm? How is it pointing me towards Him? Even, I would say, when we think about our witness among our friends and neighbors, so often the things that we worry about and spend most of our time about, and I, and I, I get this. This makes sense. We worry about the stance that we take on different ethical issues. And in some cases, it just might be the case, That those conversations are just going to be at loggerheads until there's an encounter with Jesus. That in some ways, the beliefs that we hold as Christians don't make sense outside of relationship with Him, don't make sense outside of the light of Christ. So where are you encountering Jesus in your life? Like I said, this is exactly the right question for Philip to be asking, to want to see the Father. It's exactly the same question that Moses asked all the way back in Exodus. He said, I want to see your glory. Show me your glory in Exodus 33. And you remember God said to him, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to hide you in this rock and you can see my back, but you can't, you can't see my face. But what John has been saying throughout his entire gospel from chapter one is that in Jesus we get to see what Moses couldn't see. Remember John 1:14, he said, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then later he says, For the law was given through Moses, but that grace and truth that came. Through Jesus Christ. And I know that it's tempting to think that that's, come on, that's just not the same thing. What Moses wanted to see was the glory. He wanted to see God. He wanted to see the full glory of God, right? But the astonishing, from the beginning scandalous claim of John's gospel and of the New Testament is that when we look at Jesus, we are seeing the Father revealed. It doesn't mean that God is any lower than he is, it doesn't mean that he's not infinite, incomprehensible. But what it means is that God, precisely because, precisely because he is infinite, precisely because he can truly do anything, if he chooses to reveal himself through this man, if He chooses to reveal Himself through this life, if He chooses to reveal Himself of all places through a cursed death on a cross, then He can do it. And that's where we have to look. Listen to the language that Jesus uses right here in this in this passage. He says to Thomas, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I don't speak on my own authority but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves." The verse that has the word authority in it could probably be better translated without the word authority, simply to say, the words that I say to you, I don't speak of myself. In other words, what Jesus is saying throughout these verses is, When you look at me, I'm not introducing anything new. What I'm doing in the world is what God is doing in the world. To hear my words is to hear His words. To see my works is to see the Father's works. Essentially, what he's saying is, you can believe what I say, or you can believe what I have done. Either one is going to lead you to the same place, that I and the Father are one, that we are mutually indwelling. We're starting to get these, these glimpses, and there's just going to be more of them as this farewell discourse increases, these glimpses into the very heart of the Trinity. Now, if Jesus answers Philip, Philip wants to see the Father, and Jesus says, when you see me, you have seen the Father. There's almost a hint of sadness in the way he says it, isn't there? Have you been with me so long and you don't know me yet? You could take that to mean, Philip, I've done it. I've done what you've asked for. I've shown you the Father. We're here. Uh, and yet he goes on. He goes on in verse 12. And I think the reason that he has to go on is because what he said to Thomas last week, that I'm the way to the Father. You say, how does this make sense? How, how, it, how can you both be showing us the Father right now and you're the way to the Father? Are we there or not? Have we arrived or not? And this is where I think what Jesus is saying is that to see the Father in me is an invitation not to an arrival point that puts a period on the story, but to a whole new way of life. This, uh, this past weekend, um, uh, I got to take part in most of a weekend retreat for, for Boston Fellows. It was our year-end retreat. Um, it actually wrapped up this morning. I was back here. Um, but we were talking about, as we always do at the end of the Boston Fellows year, we were talking about last things. We were talking about the new heavens and the new earth. We always try to end the year with, let's talk about how things are meant to be and how things one day will be. And one person asked, So if everything is put right, if everything is the way that it's supposed to be in the new heavens and the new earth, is that just the end of the story? Is there nothing left to do? Um, No more change? And I said, well, to some extent that's one of those questions that God in His wisdom has not given us the answer to. But if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, I I think C.S. Lewis's Christian imagination was pretty on target at this point, right? The very end of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the children have made their way into Aslan's country, which is Narnia's version of the new heavens and the new earth. And you remember what it says, it says they, they realized as they were there that everything that they had lived up to that point was just the title page and the table of contents. And now the real story was beginning, the real story that would have no end. I think it's a pretty good picture of the Christian life as well, that in some ways, the end, as in the purpose and the goal, to see the Father, is just the beginning. It's an invitation to a whole way of life, because listen to what Jesus says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, okay, and remember, when he says that, you're supposed to really pay attention, right? That's him grabbing you by the shoulder saying, listen, and listen to what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, on the one hand, in talking about works... He's reflecting here the way the gospel describes the trajectory of the Christian life. When Ephesians 2 talks about how we are saved, Ephesians 2 starts with the very depths. Ephesians 2 says, You were dead. You were dead in your trespasses. That was true of every one of us. By rights, what we all deserve uh, is death and separation from God because we've rebelled against Him. And then at verse 4, Two most important words in the whole Bible, but God, but God, being rich in mercy, saved us. And it goes on to tell us that we have been saved by grace, through faith, not through any of our own works, there's no boasting. But then it says, as a result of that, there's a trajectory towards works that you have been created for. It says, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them." So in one ways for Jesus to be talking about works is simply that same trajectory, that you have been made for a life uh, that, is, that is worth living. At the same time, you say, what do you mean, though, that we'll do greater works than you have done? How could that be? How could we do greater works than the one who uh, raised the dead, who healed the blind, who turned water into wine? Actually, I guess those are kind of in reverse order of greatness, but all of them are greater than anything I've ever done, right, or that you've ever done. Um, I think there's a few ways uh, to understand this. On the one hand, Jesus says, because I'm going to the Father. And so on the one hand, you could say the works are greater simply because with Him having been raised… The works that we do now bear witness to the whole story that includes the death and the resurrection of Christ that the disciples hadn't seen yet. So there's a greater clarity to that witness. There's also a sense in which the works that we do, the works that we are called into, end up being greater in scope. You know, the scope of Jesus' ministry was actually very narrow, he stayed in Israel very deliberately. But then, right before his ascension, he said, you will be given power when the Spirit is given, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And we see that begin to happen right away in the book of Acts. Um, When Peter gives that sermon that I mentioned earlier, it says 3,000 people were converted. That's quite a few more than seem to have been drawn to Jesus' message, Um, and it's only grown from there. So if the works that we're doing aren't greater in, you know, being more miraculous or, or, or in magnitude, um, there is a sense in which there's more scope as nations uh, are, are drawn to him. I would add, Jesus does say, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Um, so you might say, well, one way of understanding this is this is still Jesus at work. He says, I will do it. Just like we said when we preached through Acts, I think we a few times said a really good name for the book of Acts would be the continuing acts of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, He is still the one who's at work. The thing I really don't want us to miss before we close here is the invitation, because The invitation that's here is not just a promise of being called to a life that's worth living. There is an invitation to come to Him and ask. There's an invitation towards prayer. There's an invitation to ask in His name, which doesn't mean that His name has become some kind of magical incantation that we can use to get whatever we want. Because here, when he says to ask something in his name, what that means is to understand who he is well enough to ask for things in line with what he wants. And what does Jesus want? This should be really clear by now. Jesus has come in order to glorify the Father. Jesus has come in order to die a death that will bring glory to God. That the Father would be glorified in the Son, the Son would be glorified in the Son in the Father. And we are invited into that. We are invited to participate in that. We are invited to pray to that end. Um, The question I would leave you with then is, is, is that how you're praying? When you pray, are you praying for God's glory? Are you praying for His glory to increase, for His name to be hallowed? Are you praying for His kingdom to come? Um, we're going to pray in just a moment the prayer that Jesus gave us, right? And that's where it starts. That's the first thing that he told us to pray for. There is an invitation here. A life that's worth living begins by seeking his face and seeking it in the sun. It's going to lead us straight to this table. We come together to the Father, to the table that He has spread for us, through prayer. I was asking Bradley earlier this week, we were talking about the, the order of, of, of our liturgy. I don't know if you've noticed, every once in a while, I just completely forget to pray the Lord's Prayer, because I spent 18 years at a church where the Lord's Prayer was in a different part of the service, and old habits die hard. Um, so I asked Bradley this, uh, this, this past week, why, why is the Lord's Prayer after the sermon? And he said, it's to get us to the table. It's because the table draws us together. And so we need to bring our voices together. So let's do that now. Would you pray with me?